Now, this morning, we are addressing the subject of condemnation, condemnation. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at condemnation under three headings, three headings. The first truth that we're going to learn this morning is we are going to learn about the reality of condemnation, the reality of condemnation. The second truth that we're going to look at this morning is we are going to look at the sources of condemnation, the sources. And the third truth we're going to look at this morning is we are going to look at the solution for condemnation. All right, so we're going to look at the reality of it, then we're going to look at the sources of it, and then we're going to conclude by looking at the solution for it. So let's begin by looking at the reality. Look what it says in verse 19 of our passage. Look at how John begins this section. He says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. And then verse 20 says, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So what we see here in verse 19 and 20 is we see the reality of condemnation. Now, you're asking how. How do we see the reality of condemnation? Well, the fact that John has to say, this is how we know that we belong to the truth, and this is how we can set our hearts at rest in his presence, the fact that he even has to teach him how to do it, the fact that he has to teach him how to rest implies that they are not resting, right? Because if they were doing it, he wouldn't have to say it. So he's telling them, this is how you set your heart at rest in his presence, because currently you are restless. And so I have to teach you how to be restless full. And then he tells them how they lose their rest because in verse 20 he says, if our hearts condemn us. So the way in which we lose our rest in God's presence is because of condemnation. And so what we see here in verses 19 through 20 is we see the reality of condemnation. John being a pastor, remember when we we started this series, we said that John is writing to the people who are in Asia Minor. He is located in the city of Ephesus, but he's writing this letter not just to the Christians in Ephesus, but to all the Christians that surrounded Ephesus, which was the region of Asia Minor. And apparently there was people at this church, in these churches, who struggled with condemnation because John is talking to them about how to deal with condemnation, how to set their hearts at rest in God's presence. So being a pastor, he wants to deal with the issue that they are wrestling with. And the, the issue that they are wrestling with is the issue of condemnation. And what's interesting is, is that John is not surprised by the fact that they're struggling with condemnation. And he actually, he doesn't look at condemnation as a probability. He looks at it as a reality. And what he's telling these people is that you are going to struggle with condemnation. It is going to happen. So when it happens, here is how you should deal with with it. Okay? Now, here's the thing. When we talk about condemnation, one of the, the difficult things is that a lot of us really don't even know what the word means. So, so let me unpack for you what the word condemnation means. Okay? The word condemnation is, is two Greek words that are put together. The first, so the, the full word is katakrino. That's what the word in Greek is. The word kata in Greek means against, means against. The word krino means to judge. So literally, what the word condemnation is, is to judge against someone, okay? Katakrino. So according to the word studies that I looked at, the word condemnation means to be condemned in, 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 the, in the state of, it's, it's, legal, it's legal language. So it's a courtroom language. So if you go to court and you are a defendant and you are on trial, there's only two ways the thing can go, right? You're either condemned because you're guilty or you are uh, justified and vindicated, right, because you're not guilty. There's only two responses, So condemnation is when you go to court and you lose. But here's the thing. Condemnation isn't just like a slap on the wrist, like, ah, you did something that's bad, you know, don't do it again. We're going to put you on probation. No, no, no. The word condemnation in Greek, it it infers, it implies the death sentence. So if you are condemned, you're not going for, for a year to jail. You're going on death row. That's what the word condemned means. It means to receive the death penalty, Okay. And so what we're going to see today is that condemnation, now that we have a better understanding of what it is, condemnation is a reality that every single Christian has to deal with. Now, in the Bible, Romans 8, it tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's true of us objectively. But subjectively, day to day, we struggle with condemnation. Katakrino. We struggle. We feel like we are judged against. We feel like we are less than. We feel like we're not doing enough. We wrestle with condemnation. But here's the thing, the reason why I started with this truth, and I think the reason why John starts with this truth, is because half the battle is just admitting that it's going to happen. 
Half the battle is admitting that it's going to happen. Half the battle is admitting is accepting the reality. That condemnation is not a probability. Condemnation is a reality. You are going to struggle with condemnation. So the question is not if. The question is when. And then when, how do you deal with it? But here's the thing. Since a lot of Christians don't expect condemnation, when it happens, they get blindsided by it, and they don't respond to it in a biblical way. So there, there are five ways in which we respond to condemnation that are not biblical, okay? And they, are, and they all start with the letter D, okay? Just, I do it for my own memory's sake. They all start with the letter D, okay? The first way in which we respond to condemnation in an unbiblical way, because we don't expect it, is we deny it. We deny or distract ourselves. So you can put both of those in the first one. We deny it or we try to distract ourselves from it. So, so here's what the first, these people in this first group do. When, when, when Satan or the world or your sinful conscience, your sinful heart condemns you, the first response is to deny. So, so we hear it and we go, no, 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 I can't listen to that. I'm not going to listen to that. I'm going to distract myself. I can't, I can't do it. No, no, no. I'm going to act like it's not there. I'm going to just sweep it under the rug. And then when I sweep it under the rug, I don't have to deal with it anymore. That's the first way to respond, to deny it, to distract ourselves, okay? The other day, um, um, me and my girls, whenever Lily goes off on her adventures, um, we, me and the girls, we stay home. Um, and, and one of the things that we like to do is uh, I give them a lot of candy. Like, I just stuff them with candy. I'm, just, I'm the candy guy. I'm the candy dealer at the house, right? And um, so, so I give them candy. And then we have, like, these amazing dance parties. Like, it goes down, okay? And, and we put Pandora on. And whatever comes on, we just throw down. Like, it's just, it's just, uh, just a awesome, right? We just, we just throw down. And so the other day, Lily was out, and, and, and Leah was like, Dad, let's do a dance party. And I'm like, yeah, let's do a dance party. Now, one of the things that you guys don't know about me is that I like several different genres of music. But uh, two of my favorite genres of music are 90s R&B. So not 2000 R&B, because that's not that good. But 90s R&B was when R&B was at its best, okay? So I love 90s R&B. I can listen to that all. I work out to that music. That's how bad it is, right? Like, so, so yeah, I got problems. But anyway, so 90s R&B, and then the other genre of music that I really like, and this is more of a, a, a later thing that happened in the past few years, is I love EDM. I love electronic dance music, right? So there's, there's a guy, and you guys might know him. His name is John Legend. He's an R&B guy. And he came, across, he came together with this guy named Benny Benassi, who's an EDM guy. And they came together, and they made a song, and the name of the song is called Dance the Pain Away, okay? So it's my two worlds coming together, so I love the song. And the whole song is John Legend is struggling with these issues in his life. And so he, he goes, he's, he's, he's struggling with a breakup and all these different things. And so he goes to the club in order to dance the pain away, right? He wants to dance it away. And so the other day when we're, we're, we're my, my daughter uh, Leah suggests the, uh, uh, the dance party, She's like, uh, daddy, daddy, which you guys know how I feel about daddy. For those of you who've been here, I don't, I'm papi, all right? I'm Hispanic, so you call me papi, you don't call me daddy. So she's calling me daddy, so I'm already bothered about that. And she's like, and she's like daddy, 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 daddy. And I'm like, yeah, honey. She's like, let's go dance the pain away. Let's go dance the pain away. And I'm like, I literally just started laughing. I'm like, what? I'm like, how do you even know that you don't even know what pain is? Like, what are you talking about, Right? And she wanted to dance the pain away because that's what John Legend does, right? But here's the thing. We hear a story like that, and with a four-year-old, you're like, dance the pain away, ha-ha, good story, right? But here's the reality is. Here's what the reality is. Some of us, we don't dance the pain away, but we eat the pain away. Or we drug the pain away. Right? Or we... Go listen to music until the issue is gone. Or we work out the pain away. We might not dance the pain away, but we all have a method to deal with our condemnation. And if it's in any way, shape, or form denying that it's there, then you're handling it in an unbiblical way. You are denying it and you're distracting yourself, and that is not the way God wants you to deal with your condemnation. Okay? So the first way we deal with condemnation is we deny it. Another way that people deal with condemnation is they deflect it. They deflect it. Okay? So here's what people in this group do. When condemnation shows up, when the enemy shows up, when the world shows up and tries to condemn you, what you do is you, 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 it's like you, you're like a mirror reflecting it back. So you get it and you, you deflect it away. Kind of like what Adam did with Eve. Right? God goes to Adam and says, what did you do? And he's like, oh, oh the, the woman. The woman did it. It, it wasn't me. And so what a lot of us do with condemnation when it shows up, regardless of where it comes from, is we deflect. And so we blame our parents. The reason why I am what I am is because of my parents. 
The reason I am the way I am is because of my kids. The reason I am the way I am is because of my boss. The reason I am the way I am is because of fill in the blank. And we just deflect. It's always someone else's fault for why we do what we do and for why we feel guilty. We just deflect. Someone else's fault. It's someone else's fault. So this week, we were at, a, we were at the house, and uh, we had a, a, this situation that happened in our bathroom because we went into the bathroom, and the toilet paper dispenser, which is metal, it was screwed into the wall, right? We get there, and it, it had been ripped out of the wall. Like if like Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan kept going to my house and just ripped it off the wall. And I'm like, who the heck did that? Like literally ripped out of the wall. So we call our girls over, and we start doing the investigation process, right? And we want to know which one did it. Now, the problem with our daughter, Leah, which is really not a problem. It's a good thing. She can't lie. Like, she doesn't know how to lie. Like, you could just, she just can't do it. And so we asked her, Leah, did you do this? She's like, no, I promise I didn't do it. I really didn't. It wasn't me. So we're like, okay, so it wasn't Leah. So then, so Alicia had walked out, and we're like, Alicia, we call her Cha-Cha. Cha-Cha, come in. Come in here. She walks in like a thug. Like, literally, she comes around the corner. She's like. what? And we're like, did you do this? And she's looking at us and we're like, did you do this? And then she puts her arms like this and she's like, Mimi. And Mimi, for those of you who don't know, is her grandma, okay? So she's throwing her grandma under the bus. (laughs) We're like, who did this? Mimi. (laughs) We're like, Mimi hasn't been here. It was you. Me, me. (laughs) And she, she was so convincing that I started to believe it. I'm like, dang, why didn't Mimi do this? Like, what, doesn't she know we're broke? Like, why would you just break our stuff like that? Like, that's how convincing she was. Right? Why? Because when we stand condemned, one of the things we can do is deflect. And that's what she did. She deflected. I'm not taking, I'm not going to, what? Mimi did it. Right? Some of us, we don't blame Mimi. But like I said, we blame our parents. We blame our environment. We blame uh, our birth order. And, and, and we blame everything but ourselves. That's what all secular counseling is. Secular counseling is you show up and they're like, there's nothing wrong with you because there's nothing wrong with you. Everyone's perfect. So it sh- it, it, it's, it's your parents, wasn't it? It was this, wasn't it? It was that. It was that. That's all secular counseling is, trying to deflect, trying to find someone to blame your problems on. That's not biblical, though. Deflecting is not biblical, right? So the first thing we do is deny. The second thing that we can do when condemnation is brought up is we deflect Another thing that, that we can do is some of us, what we do is we defend ourselves. We defend. And so the defend people, the defensive people are the people who have their, this inner lawyer that comes up, right? And so the moment the, moment, uh, uh, the enemy or the world or even your own sinful heart uh, tries to condemn you, you get into lawyer mode. And you have all the evidence and all the reasons and all the witnesses, and, and, and you just are arguing with yourself or with the enemy about how you are not as bad as the enemy says you are. You get in defensive mode. And you spend the rest of the afternoon just talking to yourself like a weirdo, you know what I mean? Trying to get to the bottom of this issue. So that's another response. You could defend yourself. Another response that people have that's not biblical is what I call people who put themselves on in detention, in detention. They punish themselves. Detention. And here's why I call it detention, because depending on how big the sin is that was, you're reminded of, depending on how big the condemnation is, what you do is you, you punish yourself. You put yourself in detention for a period of time. So, so if what they brought up was a, was a mediocre thing, then you, take, you do a one-day detention. You punish yourself for one day. If what they brought up was this really, really big thing, then what you do is you do a two-day or a three-day detention. And here's what detention looks like. The enemy brings up condemnation, and then what you do is you just act despondent and discouraged for like two, three days. Your shoulders are down. You're in a terrible mood. You're crabby with everybody. You're, you're, you're lashing out at people, and no one knows why. And what you do is you take a break from God. Like, okay, God's mad at me, so I'm going to not pray or read for two days until he's not mad at me anymore. And you put yourself on detention until all of a sudden the feeling goes away and then you can go back to reading and praying and coming back to church because detention is over. See, but the problem when you do that is that what you're actually doing is you're paying for your sin all over again. And you're paying for the sin that Jesus has already paid for. So when you deal with condemnation by putting yourself on detention, that is not, in detention, that is not biblical. And in the last way, so just, let's go through the ones we went through, right? We can deny, we can deflect, uh, uh, we can uh, defend ourselves, we can put ourselves in detention. And the last way, and this is probably the most common way that Christians deal with this, is you just stay defeated. You're defeated. 
And there are so many Christians who walk into my office who are dealing, they're just defeated. And, and literally, you're so used to condemnation that you just, just believe that it's part and parcel of being a Christian. It's like, this, it's like this low-level guilt that never goes away. And you're never good enough in any area of your life. You just, it's like a soundtrack that's just playing over and over and over and over and over. And so many Christians live in defeat. So many Christians live like if Jesus never died. So defeat. So those are five different ways in which we respond to condemnation, and neither of them, none of them are biblical. And the reason why we respond in unbiblical ways is because we don't realize that condemnation is a reality. You are going to struggle with condemnation. Once you accept that, and once you expect it, then you are going to respond in a more biblical way because you won't be blindsided by it, okay? So if you can go back to my three points, the first thing we see is we see the reality of condemnation. The second truth that I want to talk to you about this morning is I want to talk to you about the sources of condemnation. Where does condemnation actually come from? Does condemnation just exist in a vacuum or, or does it come from somewhere? And the answer is yes, it does come from somewhere. And so what I want to answer during this section is what are the sources of our condemnation? And there's actually four of them. There's four places that condemnation comes from. The first one is probably going to be the one that you least expect, okay? The first one's going to probably be the one you least expect, and the other three are going to be ones that you probably do expect, okay? So there are four places, four sources of condemnation. The first place that condemnation comes from, and this is the one that I said probably you least expect, is from God. The first source of condemnation is God. Now, before you call me a heretic, look what it says in John chapter 3. Now, John chapter 3, verse 16 is the most famous verse in the Bible, right? And everyone knows it and everybody quotes it, right? The problem is most people stop after verse 16 and don't read 17 and 18. And look what it says. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Now, now if, you, if we were to stop there, it would seem that what I just said is wrong because I just said that God is one of the places where condemnation comes from. But what it says in the passage is that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. So, I, so that would mean I'm a heretic. But look what verse 18 says. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So listen to this, listen to this. Don't miss this. When Jesus came... John is totally right. When Jesus came, Jesus came, didn't come to condemn the world. He didn't. That was not why he came. But you know why Jesus didn't have to condemn the world? Because the world was already condemned. Okay? So if he would have come to condemn, it would have been redundant because God the Father had already condemned us back in Genesis chapter 3. Does that make sense? In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God then he dishes out punishments to Satan, to Eve, and to Adam. All that was condemnation. God, remember what condemnation means. It means to judge against. God judged against Adam, Eve, and Satan because they had sinned. So the reason why the last Adam didn't come to condemn is because the first Adam had already condemned us. God had already condemned his sin. So we already stood condemned when Jesus showed up. So he didn't have to condemn us again because we were already condemned. You see, and here's the thing. You and I are condemned in two ways. We are condemned by nature because we are born into condemnation because of the first Adam. So we are condemned by nature, but we are also condemned by choice. Because we actually choose condemnation when we sin against God, okay? So we are condemned by nature because we're born into it, but then we're condemned by choice because we choose sin, and, and as a result, God has to condemn us. So the first source of our condemnation is God because the passage says, if you believe in him, then you are not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. So, so let me put it to you like this. Well, like, you know what, before I say it, let me read the next verse. And this is uh, from Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. So, so, think of, so based on John chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, and Romans chapter, one, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, there's only, there's only two groups of people in the world. There are people who stand condemned before God, and there's the people who are in Christ, and Christ stands condemned in their place. So there are two groups of people in the world. So in other words, 
Every single person in here, I don't know if you guys know this statistic, but 10 out of 10 people die, okay? I don't know if you read that, but it's true. 10, 10 out of 10 people die, okay? So when you die, one day you're going to stand before God. And when you stand before God, God's going to only check one of two things. When, when it comes to condemnation, is your condemnation falling, on, condemnation falling on you or is your condemnation falling on Jesus? But someone's going to pay for your condemnation. Someone's paying for it. And so what he's saying is, is that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So one of the ways that I've shared the gospel in the past, when I've shared the gospel with people, is I, I use this illustration. I said, okay, pretend that it's pouring rain outside. And pretend that we are all standing outside and there's no shelter to hide under. Okay? Now, pretend that the water, the rain that's falling on us is God's wrath and God's condemnation. From the moment all of us are born, we are born outside under the rain. And God's wrath and condemnation are falling on us because that's what we deserve, right? When you place your faith in Jesus, here's what Jesus does. Jesus is an umbrella. And you get the umbrella, you open it up, and when you place your faith in Jesus, when you put yourself in Christ, the umbrella goes up, and it's not that it stopped raining, it's that the rain now is falling on the umbrella. Does that make sense? So, it's not that the wrath and the condemnation has stopped. It's that someone else has absorbed that condemnation and wrath in your place. So right now in this room, there are people who are under the umbrella of Christ, and Jesus is the one taking the rain on. And there's people in this room who are standing out in the rain still, still receiving God's wrath, still receiving God's condemnation. It's only those who are in Christ who are not condemned. That's what the Bible teaches us, Okay? Now, this week, I came across this story, and there's times in preaching where you come across stories that are just so good, and you're like, man, I got to use that. That just fits. It's just awesome, right? I came across a story that I didn't know was, I didn't even know existed until I did some research this week. Back in 1829, so we're going back, we're going back, okay? 1829, there was a, a story, a real story, about these two guys. One of them was named James Porter, and the other guy was named George Wilson, and they were friends. It's, it seems like they were childhood friends. They grew up together. And they, they both got into the, the, the life of criminals as they got older. And one day they decided to perform an armed robbery on a mail carrier. There was a mail carrier. He was carrying some valuable stuff. They, they, they jumped him, held him up, took his stuff, right? A few weeks go by. They both get arrested. And because the judge, the judge, here's what the judge decided with these two guys, James Porter and George Wilson. He decided that because they had put the mail carrier's life in danger, they, bro- they both were going to be charged with attempted murder. And as a result, they both were going to be executed by hanging. On July 2nd, 1829, they both were going to be executed by hanging. But then a few months go by and July 2nd comes around. And the only person who actually gets hung and executed is the first guy, James Porter. George Wilson is nowhere to be found. And the reason why is because unlike James Porter, George Wilson had some very influential, influential friends and family. So influential, in fact, that they went to Andrew Jackson, who was the president at the time, and they spoke to him and said, please do not allow our friend and family member to be killed. They were able to convince the president, and the president, he sent out a presidential pardon to keep uh, George Wilson from being executed. And so they did their job, and everybody was relieved, okay, George is going to be fine, praise God, we did what we had to do. But to everybody's surprise, and when I mean a surprise, it, it was such a surprise that the, the case ended up uh, going to the Supreme Court, George Wilson refused the pardon. He didn't take it. And the article doesn't say why he refused it, but it just says that he refused the pardon from the president. And so when he refused it, no one knew what to do. They're like, can, can he do that? Like, can he say no? Can he still die if we pardon him? Is that even allowed? And it became such a big issue that it made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And look at this quote. This is a a quote from the Supreme Court back then. He said, the court said, the court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it. It is a grant to him. It is his property, and he may accept it or not as he pleases. And listen to this. If this isn't the gospel, I don't know what is. It says, a pardon is an act of grace. But delivery is not completed without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and we have no power in a court to force it on him. A pardon is an act of grace. See, a lot of us, 
And the story goes that he actually ended up dying. They executed him, they hung him, and he died for his sin because he stood condemned, right? But the story goes that they just didn't know what to do. No one knew what to do. It freaked everybody out because how can a normal person not take this act of grace, this pardon? How can they not accept this? But you know what? You take that situation and multiply it by a billion, and that's what it's like if you're sitting here today and you don't accept the offer that Jesus has made for you. There are people sitting here right now, and you're sitting in a prison cell, and Jesus has come up to your cell, and he has said to you, I love you, I forgive you, I've died for you. All you have to do is accept my pardon. And you're sitting in the prison cell, and you're like, no, you know what? I'm fine, Jesus. I'm a pretty good person. I pray sometimes. I go to church sometimes. I'm a, I'm a decent husband. I'm a decent wife. I, I, I think I'm going to just play it. I'm, I'm going to do it my own. Th- thanks, Jesus, but, but no thanks. I'm, I'm going to be okay. You're not going to be okay. And listen, listen. If you die tonight, you're going to hell. If you die tonight, you're going to hell because you're not okay. The only way off death row, because that's what condemnation is, is death row. The only way out of death row is by accepting the pardon, is by stepping under the umbrella. And a lot of you, a lot of the people in this room are like, no, I got it. Don't worry about it. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. No, you're not. You're a horrible person. And you don't even know how bad you are. I don't even know how bad I am. You're either in the cell or you're out. You're either under the umbrella or you're out. But when you die, someone is paying for your condemnation. It's either you or it's Jesus. So if this is you today and you've kind of been on the fence and Christianity is kind of the thing you go to when things go bad in life, do not leave here without accepting the pardon. Do not leave here without stepping under the umbrella. Don't do it. Don't do it. So, the first place that condemnation can come from is from God. The second place that condemnation can come from is from Satan. Is from Satan. And look what it says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. It's describing Satan. Now, in Revelation 12, let me give you some context. Uh, uh, John is seeing a vision, and in the vision, God takes the dragon, which is Satan, and he throws him into, uh, he starts punishing him and starts hurling down and, 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 and removing his power. And look what it says about Satan in Revelation 12, verse 10. He says, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. And then it says, for the accuser of our... Okay, thank you. So for the accuser of our brothers and sisters, it says, since he's describing Satan, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Look how he describes Satan. Satan is the accuser of our brothers and sisters, and it says he accuses them before God day and night. So a few weeks ago when we were in John chapter 2, we learned that Jesus is our advocate that stands before God day and night. Well, there's someone else standing before God day and night, and his name is Satan, and instead of advocating for you, he's accusing you. And we brought this up in the past. We always think that Satan's primary role is to tempt us. And no, 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 that's a side gig he does, right? That's a side gig. What, 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 what Satan's primary role is is to accuse you. And so Satan shows up, and he accuses you, and he attacks your worth, and he attacks Jesus' work, and he says things like, did God really say this? Like, that's exactly what he did with Adam and Eve. Did God really say you're loved? Did God really say you're accepted? Did God really say you're forgiven? Did he really say that? Are you sure? Can when you double check on that? Does he know how bad you are? Does he know what you did? And that's what Satan does. So the second source of condemnation is Satan. Satan is the second source of condemnation. And look at this quote um, from Donald Miller. Look how he puts it. He says, if we hear in our inner ear a voice saying we are failures, we are losers, we will never amount to anything, comma, this is the voice of Satan trying to convince the bride that the groom does not love her. This is not the voice of God. So what Satan does when he shows up to condemn you is he's trying to convince you, the bride of Christ, that the groom doesn't like you anymore, that the groom has grown tired of you, that the groom is done with you. He's trying to convince you that the groom does not love you anymore. 
That's what Satan does. Okay? So the second source of our condemnation is Satan. So the first source of condemnation is God. The second source of condemnation is Satan. The third source of our condemnation is other people. Is other people. And here's the thing about condemnation with other people. Not only do people, not only do other people condemn us, and we'll talk about that in a second, but actually we condemn other people all the time. Listen to me. There are people in your life who did something to you or failed to do something for you, and in your mind, it was egregious. It was the worst thing that's ever been done, okay? There are people in your life who you have condemned, and that can be a parent, that can be a sibling, that can be a nephew, a niece, that can be a, a, a cousin, or, 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 or it, could be, it could be a spouse, it can be your children. There are people in your life who have done something that you consider totally unacceptable, totally unforgivable, and what you've done is you've dug this ditch, this hole, and you've thrown them in this hole of condemnation, and they know and you know that they're never going to get out. And every so often, you, you dangle it over them again, so, so they, they do whatever you need for, you to, for, you to, for them to do. And what you've done is you've condemned them. And when you condemn people, you are acting way more like Satan than you are like God. You've condemned them. It doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter what they've done. Nothing is as bad as what you've done to Jesus. But you've condemned that person, you've put them in a place, and they know and you know they're never going to get out. There's no apology. There's nothing they can do. There's nothing they can say. There's nothing they can buy you. They will never get out, and you've condemned them. They know it. You know it. And that's how it's going to stay. And if you're doing that, that's sin. Because if God doesn't do it to you, then who are you to do it to anybody else? Okay? So condemnation is a two-way street. It comes from you to others, but condemnation also comes from others to you. So there are people in your life who you feel like you've let down. There are people in your life who you feel like you haven't been everything you could have been for them. And there, there are two types of sins that, that we can commit. There are the, there's sins of omission. So a sin of omission is when you don't do something that you're supposed to do. That's what a sin of omission is. I was supposed to do that. I didn't do it, right? The other type of sin are sins of commission. Sins of commission are when you do something that you weren't supposed to do. So sin of omission is when you don't do something you're supposed to do. A sin of commission is when you do something that you're not supposed to do. In our lives, because of our sins of omission and our sins of commission, we have let the people around us down. And that person could be anybody. It can be a child. It can be a spouse. It can be a parent. Uh, it can be a family member. But the reality is, is there someone in your life who you feel like you've let down? And here's the thing. That person could be actually condemning you, or they might not even be condemning you, but in your mind you think they're condemning you, and so you're trying to get their approval even though they're not condemning you. There's people here who have parents who died years ago, and they're still condemned by someone who's dead. And they're never going to get forgiveness because the person's gone. But it doesn't matter what God says. God can say, hey, I love you and I forgive you, but God, I don't really care what you say because my parent or fill in the blank hasn't forgiven me. And if they can't forgive me, then I can't forgive myself. So condemnation is something we do, but it's also something that can happen to us as well. So, so the first source of condemnation is God. The second source of condemnation is Satan. The third source of condemnation is other people. And the fourth and final source of condemnation in your life, and I would argue it's the worst one, is you. The worst source of condemnation in your life is you. You know why? Because nobody knows you more than you. And so even if, even if those people who you think are condemning you have forgiven you, you really don't care, even if they've forgiven you, like, because I haven't forgiven me for what I did to you. So whether you're okay with it or not, I'm not okay with it. You are the worst source of condemnation in your life. And one of the ways that, that we condemn ourselves is with the I am not enough lie. I am not enough. You know, I can't tell you how many times I struggle with condemnation as a pastor. Like if we have a Sunday where we have a low attendance Sunday, no one will even flinch. No one even thinks about it. They just came to church or didn't come to church. I will go home and I will determine my value that day by how many people showed up to church that Sunday. If there's a lot of people, then I'm not condemned. If there's not a lot of people, then I am condemned. You know how crazy that is? But there's so many examples of this. 
There's so many areas in our life where we think, there's fathers who don't think they were enough for their children. There's, there's, there's spouses that don't think they were enough for their, 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 spou- their, 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 their spouse. There, there are children who don't think they were enough for their parents. And their parents had what they thought was an unexpe- you know, unrealistic expectation they can never live up to. So they just don't think they're enough for them. And we just walk around with this just guilt, with this horrible guilt and shame and disgust of ourselves. And you know, who, you know who are the people who struggle, in my opinion, man, I might be wrong on this, but you know who are the people who I've seen in my time in pastoral ministry who struggle the most with condemnation? Moms. Moms struggle with horrible condemnation. As a matter of fact, I just came across this article that just came out a few weeks ago in Time Magazine. In the cover of Time Magazine, it's a woman holding her baby, and it's called The Goddess Myth. And they said that, that what, what, what sociologists and psychiatrists are seeing that's just shocking to them, which I don't know why it is, but it says that they did a survey of, of, of a very big pool of mothers, new, new moms, and they said that half of new mothers struggle with shame, guilt, and condemnation. Half of them. And when they asked them why, they said because they, are, they feel like they're not enough for their children, and now that they have children, they feel like they're not enough with, for their spouse, and they feel like they're not doing enough at this place and that place and this place and that place, and they're struggling with shame and guilt. And here's the thing. That's only new moms. For those of you who have had kids for longer than that, you know that it only gets worse from there. It's this horrible feeling of condemnation that moms go through, that you're not enough. Oh, I should have cooked more. I should have been from there for my spouse more. I should have uh, disciplined more. I should fill in the blank. And you just feel this, this horrible sense of condemnation. And I came across this article by Trevin Wax, who's this guy who's a contributor to the Gospel Coalition website. And in the website, on this, he wrote, an, he wrote uh, like a, a blog post, and he wrote it to moms. And there's a quote in the, in the blog post that just really stood out to me. He said, listen, mothers, God loves you not because you are a great mom, but because you are a precious child. Let me say that again. God loves you not because you are a great mom, but because you are a precious child. We need to understand that. We need to allow the gospel to change us in that. And even singles, there's a lot of singles here. Singles struggle with condemnation because they, they, they haven't found someone yet. And so they feel that God's punishing them for something. Like, God, you must be punishing me because I don't have someone who loves me and accepts me and embraces me. No, God's not punishing you. Because if you're a Christian, he can't punish you anymore because he already punished Jesus. Your singleness is not a punishment. It's not. God's not angry. Or if you're going through suffering here, if you're going through cancer or, or whatever, diabetes, fill in the blank, God's not punishing you because he can't punish you. Because if you're a Christian, he already punished Jesus, and he can't punish you twice. He's not punishing you. So stop punishing yourself. Okay? So we've looked at the reality of condemnation. Let's put the three points back up. We looked at the, con- the reality of it. We looked at the sources of it. And the last thing I want to do as we conclude is I want to look at the solution for it. So we know it's a reality, and we know there are sources that it comes from. And now the question is, what can we do about it? What is the solution for condemnation? So let me reread this part of the, let me go back to our passage, and here's what it says. Verse 19 says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Verse 21, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. So what we have here in this passage, the very passage where we discovered the problem, we actually also have the solution. And what we find here in this passage is we actually find a four-part solution to our problem with condemnation, okay? The first part of this solution is we need to humble ourselves, if you want to deal with your condemnation, you need to humble yourself. Now, now where do I get that, the idea of humbling yourself? What does humbling yourself have anything to do with this? Well, go back to verse 22 and uh, uh, verses 20 through 20, 21 through 22. Uh, no, sorry, one, we'll go one back more. There you go. Look what he, look at the, don't miss this, don't miss this. Look at verse 20. In verse 20, it says, if our hearts condemn us, right? It says, we know that God is greater than our hearts. That's what the passage says, right? 
that one of the ways we deal with our condemnation is by knowing that God is greater than our hearts. The word there to know, it means to be certain of something. It means to, to be convinced of something. It, the word to know means to that something that you have fully grasped. And, and what John says is that the way we deal with our condemnation is by knowing that God is greater than our hearts. The word greater is not only greater like in he's bigger than us, but it means greater in status, in quantity, in size, in dimensions. That's, it's, it's greater in every single way. He says that the way we deal with our condemnation is by knowing that God is greater than our hearts. But you know why we still deal with condemnation? Because we don't actually believe that God is greater than our hearts. So we, right now we do because we're at church and that's what we're supposed to do. But the moment you get back to work, the moment you get back home, the moment you get in another fight, what you say about you is infinitely more important than what God says about you. So the way we deal with our condemnation is by reminding ourselves that God is greater than our hearts. But we don't believe that. We don't believe it. We don't believe it. And when I'm in a meeting at work and I get offended or I get bothered or, or I'm tired or I'm discouraged, the reason why I'm tired and discouraged is because in that moment, what I say about me is more important than what God says about me. And so the reason why the first thing we need to do is we need to humble ourselves is because if you think that your heart is greater than God, you know what you're struggling with? You're struggling with pride. You are extremely prideful is what it means. If what I say about me is more important than what God says about me, that means I am an extremely prideful person. So you go to someone like that and you say, hey, hey, God has forgiven you for your sin. And they're like, listen, listen, I know God has forgiven for my, me for my sins, but I can't forgive myself. You know what you're saying? Who cares what God says? What I say about me is what actually matters. That's a very prideful thing to say. So when you counsel someone with condemnation or you counsel yourself and you're struggling with condemnation, call yourself what you are. Because condemnation seems very humble on the surface, but you're actually extremely prideful because what you're saying is that what you believe about yourself is more important than what Jesus believes about you. And that's prideful. That is extremely prideful. So the first thing we got to do is we have to humble ourselves if we're going to deal with our condemnation. The second thing we have to do is we have to agree with ourselves. We have to agree with ourselves. Well, where do I get that? Well, in verse 20, he says, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. And then it says, comma, and he knows everything. The passage says that part of the reason why we should be comforted by God is because God knows everything. He knows everything, Okay. So think about this. This is why I say about one of the ways we deal with condemnation is by agreeing with ourselves. Because here's what happens. When condemnation shows up, whether it's from Satan or from the world or from you, when condemnation shows up, what we do is we try to debate Satan. We're like, no, I'm not that bad. Because, yeah, I did that, but look, I did this. I'm not that bad. Because, yeah, maybe I did this, but, but, but I, I've done this, right? And we deal with our condemnation by trying to argue with Satan, by trying to prove a point. We don't have to prove a point. We, what we actually have to do is agree with him. When Satan shows up and says, hey, you're a sinner and you're wicked, you'd be like, bro, you don't even know the half of it. You don't even know how bad I actually am because I don't even know that myself that well. God knows everything. And the person who knows me fully has forgiven me fully, so who cares what I think? I agree, Satan. See, the reason why we struggle with condemnation is because condemnation makes sense. Condemnation makes sense. Why does it make sense? Because it's what we deserve. So when Satan gives us a logical argument, don't try to fight against the logic. Lean into it. Agree with it. Be like, yeah, you're right. That's what I deserve. And you're only bringing up this issue. You don't even know 99% of what I've done. God does, and he forgave me. So agree with it. Stop trying to argue with him. Lean into it. Allow condemnation to lead you back to the gospel where you need to be. Don't fight it. Agree with it. So the first thing we do is we humble ourselves. The second thing we do is we agree with ourselves. And then the third thing we do is we forget ourselves. We forget ourselves. Now, if you go to the next passage in the next section, look what he says. Well, you know what? Go back to verse 20 for a second. Let me read it from there. He says, if our hearts condemn us, right, comma, we know that God is greater than our hearts. Now go to the next section. Then he says, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And here, here's what I want you to see there. John's saying that it doesn't matter what your heart does. It doesn't matter if your heart condemns you or if it doesn't condemn you. It doesn't matter what your heart thinks because God is the solution either way. 
Forget yourself. Forget what you think about yourself because it doesn't matter. Actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he's like, listen, I've gotten to a place in my walk with Jesus. I am so aware of the gospel now that not only do I, care, not, only do I not care what any human court thinks about me, I don't even care what I think about myself anymore. Tim Keller has a book called The, Art of the, the, the Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, and the whole book is on that passage. He says, you know the gospel is impacting you, not only when you don't care what other people think about you, but that you don't even care what you think about you. Because who cares what you think? Who cares? Actually, there's this guy. He went to D.L. Moody once, the old evangelist D.L. Moody. And he said to D.L. Moody, I'm really struggling with my faith and I don't know what to do. I'm really wrestling with my faith and I don't know what to do. And D.L. Moody said to him, let me ask you a question. Was Noah saved by the ark? And he was like, uh, yeah, I guess, right? He's like, okay, let me ask you another question. What saved Noah, the ark or his feelings about the ark? And he's like, I guess the ark did. He's like, did his feelings matter at all? No. He's like, that's how it is with the gospel. Who cares what you think? You're in the ark. You're not going to get swallowed up because the ark is there, not because you're doing anything. So he says, if your hearts condemn you, God is greater than your hearts. If your, heart, if your hearts don't condemn you, God is still greater than your hearts because God's the one that gives you peace, not you. It's not you. So forget what you think. Who cares what you think about yourself? I don't care if you think you're the best. I don't care if you think you're the worst. Because what you say about yourself does not matter. It's what Jesus says about you that matters. So forget about you. Okay? So, so let's go through it. Well, the first thing we do is we humble ourselves. The second thing we do is we agree with ourselves. The third thing we do uh, uh, is we uh, um, forget ourselves. And then the last thing we do is, is we, we have to preach to ourselves. We have to preach to ourselves. And where do I get that? Well, here's what's interesting. If you look at the passage, um, if you go to uh, verse 22, go to verse 22 first. He says, he says, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask. And then he says, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. So the question we should ask is what are God's commands? What does God want me to do? Well, he tells us in the next verse. He said, and this is his command. Listen to this. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, mind you, remember this. Don't, don't forget this. He's writing to Christian people. He's writing to a church, people who already know Jesus. And he's telling him, you know what you need to do? You need to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And you're thinking, why would he tell that to Christians? They already know Jesus. They've already believed in Jesus. Why? You know why? Because we don't do it. That's why, because the word believe there, it means to fully rely, to fully lean in, to fully give yourself over to something, to fully trust in something completely. We don't do that. That's why he's got to do it. He tells us to do it again and again and again and again. Every morning you have to get up and you have to tell your soul again, believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Believe in the name of Jesus Christ. The reason why we struggle with condemnation is not because we have a behaving problem. It's because we have a believing problem. We don't believe the gospel. We, we go through life and what we say about us and what others say about us and what Satan says about us is in video and what God says about us is in audio. So we hear what God says, but that's not what's real. It's what these people say. We need to believe in the name of his son. He's talking to Christians and the solution is the same one that got him in. Believe in the name of his son Jesus. And then we looked at Romans 8 verse 1, right? But look at how Paul finishes Romans 8. This is awesome. And at the end of verse 8, uh, she says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn the word we've been looking at if god justifies you who can condemn you not you not satan not a relative nobody can because god has already justified you god has already vindicated you so who cares what you think or what anybody else thinks it's done you're free it's over you know one of my one of my favorite stories in the bible and i'll finish with this is john chapter 8 
And in John chapter 8, for those of you who don't know what's going on there, that's the story where Jesus is uh, hanging around by the temple courts, and, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, bring him a woman that's been caught in adultery. And in the passage, it literally says she was caught in adultery, like she was caught in the middle of it. So there's a good chance this lady is either fully naked or partially naked because she was caught in the middle of the act of adultery, right? So they bring Jesus, they bring this woman to Jesus, and they're like, what are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do to this woman? Because we know what she deserves. We have our rocks ready. What are you going to do, though? And the passage says that Jesus, he stays silent, he kneels down, and he starts writing something in the sand. And we don't know what it is, but what some commentators guess is that he actually starts writing the other nine commandments. And he says, this is the one she broke, but have you broken any of the other ones? And he starts listing them. And then the older men, it says that the older ones first, they saw what Jesus was writing, and they're like, oh, dang, yeah, I can't, we can't do this. And they leave, right? Because they realized that they, were, they couldn't be in the place of condemnation because only God should be in that place. But here's what's crazy about that story. There are two things here when Jesus responds to the woman. There's two things that I don't want you to miss. Look what Jesus says in verse 10. It says, Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Right? And she says, no one, sir, she said. Now, look look at this. He says, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, there's two things here that if you're not paying attention, you could easily miss. Why does Jesus say, neither do I condemn you? Because the problem is the woman deserved to be condemned. That is what she deserved. Let's be honest here, right? According to the law, she deserved to be killed for what she did. So why did Jesus say, neither do I condemn you? The reason why Jesus can say to her, neither do I condemn you, is because Jesus says, the reason why I'm not going to allow you to be naked, exposed, beaten, and stoned, and killed is because I am going to be naked, exposed, beaten, and killed. So I'm not telling you don't be condemned because you don't deserve it, because you do. I'm telling you don't be condemned because I'm about to do this for you in your place. That's why Jesus can say you're not condemned. But that's not even the most amazing part. Then he says, don't miss the order, because in the Greek, there's a reason why he says it in this order. Jesus says to her, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin, uh, go and leave your life of sin, Okay. Please don't miss this order because here's what a liberal person would say. A liberal person who doesn't believe in the Bible, who doesn't believe in sin, if they were in this place, they would say to the woman, neither do I condemn you. You know why? Because you did nothing wrong. You do whatever you want and you're free and there's no rules and you do whatever you want. So I don't condemn you because you did nothing wrong. That's what a liberal person would say. A religious person would say, I condemn, you did something wrong and I condemn you and you deserve to die. So a liberal would say, there's no condemnation because you didn't do anything wrong. A religious person would say, there is condemnation because you did everything wrong, right? But look at what Jesus says. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, he, he, he does neither. He goes on neither extreme. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go, go now and leave your life of sin. Now, when I first read this passage, I read it the wrong way. And then when I saw the order, it blew my mind. Because he says, listen, he doesn't say, go now and leave your life of sin, and then I won't condemn you. That's not what he says, Right? Does he say that? Does he say, go sin no more and then I won't condemn you? No, no, no. He says, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. In other words, Jesus is saying, he's not saying, hey, obey and then I won't condemn you. He's saying, I don't condemn you, now go obey. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's why all of us struggle with condemnation because we believe that it's the opposite. We believe that I got to obey this week. I got to really do what I got to read my Bible this week. I got to pray this week. And if I do well enough, God won't condemn me on Sunday. No, 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 no. God's saying to you, I don't condemn you. Now go do what I'm telling you to do. And even if you don't do it, I still don't condemn you because I've already condemned my son in your place. He already died. So there's no condemnation. Why? Because you are in Jesus. He did what you couldn't do. So now I condemn you. I I don't condemn you and I love you because I see you the way I see him. And so our problem with condemnation is not a behaving problem. It's a believing problem. To the degree that you believe the gospel, to that same degree, you will stop struggling with condemnation. Amen? Let's pray.